Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, the J10 Initiative. Alright, I'm going to start before Mike gets situated, because he hates when I say these words. Welcome to the podcast. For 500, almost 500 episodes, we've been fighting over, do I start and end the podcast with the same words, or does Mike go crazy and go rogue? And shake it up. This is Catholic Stuff You Should Know. Father John, Father Mike. We got our buddy Father Will in the crowd with us here. Greetings, everybody. And we are drinking some delicious bourbon thanks to Will. This is Barrel Bourbon. Kind of an yeah, unimpressive name, but a delicious uh, a bourbon. So thank you, Will, yeah, for providing us thing. with a, uh, mm. a, a taste. So we are uh, round two here. We're going to try and go a little shorter this time. Uh, we actually have two half podcasts. So after a, a, you know, a little warm-up with banter, get the, the muscles moving a little bit, we'll have Will uh, sort it out which, which topic we're going to do. But in the meantime, i got to ask Father Mike. Okay. Finals. You're a, you're a professor now. Are you going to bring the hammer with these guys, or what are you thinking? Well, I'm trying not to. I think the guys are pretty intimidated. They, uh, I mean, it is Greek class. It is Greek. So that uh, naturally is going to be, um, I don't know, people say it's all Greek to me, which I think means that's tough. Right. And uh, I, I think the guys feel it, but they're, they're well-situated. They're in a good spot. They've worked hard. I've I do weekly quizzes to just keep them moving. A quiz show, yeah. Quiz show, quiz show, quiz show, quiz show, trivia. Um, and I think they're I think they're pretty well ready. But I can tell that they're nervous. You've been really good at Greek for a very long time um, since we were in seminary. Is it hard to teach guys at a basic level? I mean, or is it? Uh, yeah. You know, you, what's you, it been like? You take a lot for granted just like I know this stuff. So it's come second nature. It's like if you were trying to teach somebody how to uh, read, like I've never done that. I've never taught anybody to read English. And it would be, you do have to go back to like the phonetics and just learning words. I sat in the classroom. I don't, I, the guys are not going to like that. I'm comparing it to uh, sitting in the third grade or second grade classroom with at Our Lady of Lords. There's a dove named Stella, nice and uh, cooing in the distance, and the kids are all sitting in the on the circle in the rug on the rug, and um, they're reading. And as they're reading, they're kind of mispronouncing words or trying to read the word, and then you have to give it to them. And you wonder, like, do you understand what you're reading? Or are you just like saying saying the words, saying the words, you know, all, yeah. the, all the phonetics and everything? But I've I've been quizzing these guys, trying to shake it up. I do a lot of different exercises, and they're doing pretty well with it. I feel like teaching Greek grammar is mostly coaching. Like There's kind of like short lectures, not lectures, but lessons that introduce new uh, features of grammar, and then you have to memorize stuff. You yeah. just have to work. you got to memorize vocabulary. you got to memorize all kinds of lists. And then my job is just to try to make sense of those things and give them a lot of practice. In and you got to work at it constantly, I think, with the like the language stuff. You can't just kind of coast and then, oh, you'll be fine, but you got to stay on it. And uh, Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, in something like the theology class, I would hope that they can be really, it can be leading to discussion. And there's a lot of involvement and guys sort of thinking things out, whereas Greek is is a lot of just 
learning how to use a tool. Yeah. And then in the future, it becomes really fascinating and very, really helpful if you use it. But for now, like a year of introductory grammar, it's really hard to make it like interesting and exciting. The learning, Engl- uh, learning how to read thing is interesting. I, uh, you remember Shannon Gunning? Yeah. Now Sister Mary Casey. What's up? She is a Sister of Life uh, sure friend of ours for a long time. <laughs> Definitely not listening. But Sisters of Life have a really beautiful um, apostolate, and uh, they care for women who have children out of wedlock, and they live with them. And uh, our friend Shannon, Sister Mary Casey, called my mom, who was an uh, elementary school teacher for decades, and said, we have a, a young woman here who's never learned how to read. So my mom's had Lillian on uh, FaceTime, and she's been teaching her in, wow. in our from our kitchen, and it's it's amazing. I just it's, I love watching it. And is it a nun or is it one of the? It's one of the women friends that she yeah, works who with. Was like in the Bronx, I think, and now lives with the sisters, and they're helping her get back wow, on her feet. Good but on it's, you, Mary. It's been pretty cool to see my mom, a retired teacher, kind of jumping back into it, and just the joy of like being able to read so oh, she's such a good teacher too. there's a little positive encouraging banter for i like um thursday evening i think that uh, the most patient people who have retired from work are nurses and kindergarten teachers you can just tell they're so chill yeah and i don't think they necessarily brought that to the life and to the to the job they learn that because it, these are not easy jobs that you is gotta, true you got to learn patience yeah that is true I've met some nurses, and I don't know if they're that chill, but kindergarten teachers, I would definitely agree. So you got to have a particular Eventually, kind of they're chill. Temperament, right? Exactly. Absolutely. So. I couldn't hold control. I got ADHD, and I like to play. So yes. I wouldn't be able to sit, sit and study and calm people down. Are I, you st- I rile people up. Are you still doing pump-up songs in your, to start off your Greek lectures? Daft Punk today. Nice. <laughs> What is it? Hard, uh, harder, faster, stronger? Oh, nice. I need a gobel there performing that one. Don't we all? Yeah, don't we all? We had a uh, priest convocation last week. Speaking of the gobel, he, he hasn't been on the podcast yet, but we had a trivia night that lasted three hours, oh, it was and he was trivia. electric. Yeah. He the was guy, the entertainer. He was, he was absolutely in his zone. He came out in the uh, Bucky's suit, the, uh, what do you call those things? I don't Be- know. Beaver Nuggets. It was a weird Beaver Nugget Beaver Nugget costume. suit. I don't think all the... I mean, he is in front of 200 priests. I don't think they knew what to do with him. There was like a big screen where they were doing all the slideshow, you know, the and he was behind dancing, and it was like the the black oh, yeah. and white. Do you remember Pro- that? Profile. It was amazing. It was... Uh, but I'm sure it's very strange for a lot of those guys. Right, exactly. If you're not a companion, you don't know the Goble. But uh, yeah, it was he was great. He was. He, he was did a great job, zone. and I hadn't I hadn't seen him exhausted for a long time, and he was exhausted by the end of those three hours. And I'd like to give a shout out to my team that sucked at trivia, and then bet bet everything on the final Jeopardy question, and won. And CJ Mast, or PJ Mask, as my nephews call him, Father PJ Mask. Do you know who that is? No. Okay, he's a cartoon character. Oh, I Paw was going to say, Paw Patrol. Yeah, don't you have like, ne- don't you have little people in your family? Friend? Paw Patrol has a character named PJ Mask who looks strangely like Father CJ Mask. Oh, really? Who's a little guy? He's a dog. Yeah, they look. They look. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it's worth a Google. Didn't they get canceled? The Paw Patrol. Probably, but uh, the guy, the 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 Goebbels final Jeopardy question, which was utterly impossible. How many of those C95 masks, what are they called? The f- official ones? 
Yep. M95, M85. N95. (laughs) Whatever, the N95. How many of them were produced in the United States in the year 2020? And you guys just guessed? We just guessed and we got it. We are the closest. 180 million. We guessed 108 and we are the closest and we walked away with all the winnings. Yeah, we were way off. 30 million. I think one guy said 30 million. The other guy said 800 million. Totally impossible question, but Goble was on fire. He did a great job. What about uh, you and your finals? I got to reciprocate here. Yeah, I've had four weird semesters because of COVID. So I had one normal one and then uh, two bizarre ones. Yeah, online. I do uh, oral exams. I like that. I like putting the guys on their feet. Well, it is, but it's also like uh, they do papers, you know, so I have to, and uh, I had to do take homes during. during uh, COVID, which I realized is a lot of work post-semester, when you get like 40, oh, yeah. 40 uh, papers. five, eight-page papers you got to read. Um, I just got two pagers from the Deacon class yeah. that I just finished, and those are hard to read. Yeah. 25, 25 guys. It's a lot. I want to give them good feedback on right. it, and it's, yeah, it's tough. That so I how do you do. know that a guy's not just talking around something, just talking? Is it, like, How do you make sure that there's content there? Do you direct them to to make sure, like, because maybe a guy's just talking, but he, he does know more of, like, the facts or the things that you learned, the, sp- the more specific things, but he doesn't, he needs prompting to get there. Does it work like that? They just talk, uh, not talk re- around? I don't really prompt them. I let them roll. I'm just like, give me five, five, seven minutes on this topic. Okay. And I usually have a bunch of cards out on the table, and they flip it, and it's like, purgatory, Go. Wow. Because if you step into an RCI class or you're at a dinner and somebody asks yeah, you, you got to be able to true. think on, and talk on your feet. And I want to hear that kind of skill. Uh, I'm not as worried about so the, for this the creative ep- or the uh, kind of regurgitation of facts. I just want to see, do you get the basics? Um, and then I ask some questions and kind of... So for this episode, do you want to... Test me. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> on, I, well, that's why these theologi- cards these cards are laid out on the table. Exactly. That's why we brought you tonight. So, no, it'll, we'll see how it goes. But uh, well, all right, Will, I think uh, you have to decide. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you ever watched Seinfeld, but uh, they choose. I'll choose you for it. So, pick a number between one and two in your head. Don't tell us. Okay. Wait, who? Will does. Will does. Okay. And then Mike. What? Pick one. Say it out loud, Mike. Dose. Will? Uno. Uno. Oh. Means I'm going. All right. I wasn't expecting that. Okay. Hold on. I'll be right back. <laughs> Will, Wait say, a minute. How could you? It's 50-50. I'll be, I'll be ready. Hold on one second. I just got to grab a book. You got to come prepared. I got to grab a book. Will, say what you just said outside and uh, as a segue. All right. Wait. Hold up. We just did an episode with Father yes. Will on sacred music. That is and correct. So you're going to want to preface this comment by listening to that podcast. Yeah. I mean, I, we were just kind of processing the last podcast cause I don't know, maybe I mentioned some things that were, Oh, there's co- always controversial. That- um, but I guess I would say that, you know, I myself had to have a, a major conversion to sacred music. I remember there was this guy who tried to present to me this concept of sacred music uh, when I was in college, and, and I just so you know, I'm a convert to Catholic faith. I came in through a life teen parish, so I was, uh, you know, I, I I was not introduced to chant until I entered the seminary, right? And the first time somebody tried to present it to me, I was 
I was kind of angry because I felt like it was an attack on the music that I liked yeah, rather than its appropriateness for mass. So I remember having an argument with this guy about, there's this uh, metal band called Stained. I don't even remember that band. But they do this really uh, <laughs> no. powerful emotional song that's less metal and more poetic. Um, anyways, I, I really enjoyed it. And, and I was trying to make the argument, and this is me as like a 20-year-old, that you could sing that at mass and it'd be appropriate. And he was like, uh, no. And he was trying to explain to me why. I think Father Chris Lebsack would try, try to advocate <laughs> for Metallica. Well, and I, I remember saying, like getting angry at him because at the time I, I thought he was saying I shouldn't like that song. Uh, and that, that was not what he was saying. He was saying that there's a nature to music in the mass. And so I have great sympathy for those who, who struggle with this. And it, it took a while for me to like, I actually joined the choir in the seminary and that's when I started to really appreciate and understand yeah. that you can actually pray with some of this chant and some of this, this, these pieces that maybe are in another language, maybe they're in Latin or, or maybe they're in English and uh, they're just mo more challenging to sing. But I just remember uh, over the years just allowing that to kind of enter into my prayer life and enter into my personal life uh, and my personal prayer. And I started to see how be beautiful it was, but at first I was angry too. So I have great uh, empathy uh, for those who, you know, who struggle with it. So I, I, I just thought that yeah. was one thing I wish I had said. You're uh, not you trying know. to be like a high horse guy. No, man. It's I'm like, just, I just want people to pray the mass. I want people to love Jesus Christ in the mass. I want to elevate their prayer to another level. That, that's to me yeah. the goal. That's, and it can that's take what's time. On my heart. That's what I'm trying. Anything I do in the mass, it's for that purpose. Yeah. yeah. So. Hey. Okay. Thank you. Will Schmidt on his low horse, still a nice guy. We like him. All right, Michael. I, Wait, this is what's a, the difference? A horse is a horse, isn't it? Uh, like a right. pony. Right, we're not going to figure this out. He's riding a pony. <laughs> uh, Shetland, Shetland. Shetland pony. I, that's a funny scene, thinking of you riding one of those. Michael, I want to talk to you tonight about apocatastasis because Whoa, you... Well, I you, love that topic. I know. So I was thinking about... Uh, I, was talk, I was teaching this today in class in eschatology which is a study of the end times, the last things, and uh, come across a, a very interesting word that I've been hammering into the guys, which Father Mike uh, knows much about because he wrote a license thesis on this topic. So I, I figured this could be a topic that you are interested in. It's not true. Okay, kind of. My, okay. A lot of my doctoral research is on is related to this word. All right, so the word apocatastasis is a Greek word. It will not be on the final, I don't believe, uh, though that would be kind of awesome. And uh, it, it's hapex uh, legomenon, which means... certainly is. It happens one time, in the, one time in the Greek Bible. And where is it? It appears in Acts 3.21. Which is the which, apocalyptic digression. The apocalyptic digression. <laughs> so, yeah, that's great. Repent. So, uh, what is go it? ahead, you got Re it? Repent and be converted for the, for, uh, for the blotting out of your sins and that uh, God might send... Uh, times of refreshment. And times of refreshment that, uh, that God might send the Christ who was preordained, who he had preordained um, for the restoration of all things spoken by the prophets. But well done. But it could be all things as the prophets had spoken... Or it could be all things that the prophets had spoken. Okay, so Father Mike just quoted Acts 3, 19 to 21. Peter is in the temple. This is his second speech, right? That's right. And he's going through this whole thing, and then he has this wild digression, 
which was called by which Fitzmaier Fitzmaier calls it an apocalyptic yeah, digression. Apocalyptic. It's just this amazing, like yeah. if imagine we're doing a podcast and all of a sudden Father Mike just goes into this like sci-fi. super sci-fi moment, yeah. and which was is which is very likely that that so could happen. So the other the other speeches in Acts uh, follow a very uh, standard charismatic uh, pattern or form, and they they begin with some sort of miracle that prompts the speech. They say, okay, this speech was, or, or this miracle was done by Jesus, and it's for the reason to show that he is the Christ, the Savior. You should convert your life, and, um, and then there's usually, like, here's the benefits. And in this speech, it's um, the blessing of um, promise to Abraham. And then there's usually scriptures that are um, used to, to support the argument. All of these speeches, there's a lot of speeches in Acts, that are standard, very standard like this. But then this one has that little chunk of three verses that sound sci-fi and very unusual and only happen here and only happen with some language that doesn't happen anywhere else in the New Testament. So the idea is that in the earliest preaching of the apostles in Jerusalem, they used to talk more like this in in an apocalyptic style, Mm -hmm. sci-fi style. But then eventually it was it was streamlined and it became more charismatic because it was easier to understand because it appealed more people and it was uh, something you could talk about in the pagan world. So there's your speeches and acts. Excellent. So uh, apocatastasis, uh, for our very brief definition here, restoration, we'll just call it that. But Mike, if you were going to break down apokatastis uh, in the yeah. Greek, because Greek is kind of combines words and... Yeah. You understand? What is it actually? Katastasis stasis is like how something is. Kata means down. So it's like the breakdown of things as they stand. And then apo is like um, kind of just bringing back, return right. from the breakdown of the, the state, stasis, to the uh, restoration. Right. Re- uh, so bringing back what has been broken down. Yeah. Setting things in order again, bringing it back. Yeah. So... Very interesting word. Um, I, I'm curious. I have an author here in my hand who I will talk about shortly. But uh, from this book, he says that you could um, you can translate apocatastasis in two ways, and I'll, I want to hear your thoughts on this. The first version corresponds to the literal meaning of the word, which is restoration. Secular Greek employs it in a number of different contexts: medical restoration of health, legal, political, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And then he says, but then there's this other term as well. Let me see if I can find it. The second translation in Acts is preferable because it brings out the line of speech in Peter's thoughts. So he's saying, if you think about the context, it doesn't necessarily mean this kind of pulling everything back together in the end. Okay, mm-hmm. um, that the though the basic meaning is restoration, it doesn't necessarily have this kind of recurrent cycling thing. So the question is. What it's it's kind of a broader term in the ancient world. What is exactly is Peter talking about? How do we interpret it? Uh, which, if you study the history of theology, dogmatic theology, yeah, that'd be that's going to unfold. You're going to realize that this is a heavily contested and very uh, dangerous word, even into our day. Okay, so here we go. Here's the very brief ex- brief story. For the first two centuries after the Peter utters these words in the temple, theologians are dealing with two things. Number one polemics against the Jews and against the Gnostics. Hmm. So, so you have the whole problem of like, how do we relate to the, the Jews, the Old Testament, and then also you have these Gnostic breakoffs that are happening from the very beginning. So contrary to public belief, like the church was a mess from day one. 
It was. It was just. It was just crazy. <laughs> yeah, you probably and, have uh, to. You probably have to define that further. That's the claim of the Mormons and right. It was Protestant Reformation. Yeah, we believe in the Holy Spirit, but yeah. but nonetheless, certain uh, theologians who are. So you don't have the East-West distinction, right? You've got these great theologians who are bishops in France, in Gaul, in the first, second century. So you think about uh, Irenaeus is in Lyon, right? And uh, Hilary is in Poitiers. Mm-hmm. Both and French. they are writing in, in Greek. Right, yep. And the point of this is to say their concern is cosmic. They're thinking about how does Christ reconcile all things? How yep. is there this recapitulation. How is all of creation drawn back to the Father yeah. in Christ? And Paul has some references to all of creation is groaning for the revelation of the sons of God, like waiting for something. There's a new heavens and a new earth that's promised by Jesus and then is must be part of our reality as Christians. What did the resurrection do? It's already starting a new, cre- a new creation. So the cosmic vision is something in the New Testament, but I think focused on particularly by these um, Greek writers. Exactly. So they're, they're not interested. This is not Christianity in terms of everybody's bowling their own game, right? This is since the Protestant Reformation, where it's all about individual salvation. Yeah. Am I going to be saved? Am I in a state of mortal sin? Am I such and yeah. such? As, no, the individual they're, they're not thinking about... Very tiny piece. They're of not the big, thinking big about picture. individualistically. Yeah. That's going to transfer into the third century into uh, a series of creative geniuses uh, who are heavily Platonic, so they're influenced by the philosophy of Plato. And uh, one of them is going to be a guy named Origen. And Origen is going to take this word, apokatastasis, and he's going to run with it. Not in his early writings, but in his later writings. And he's going to say, hey, check this out. The universal restoration means that everything's going to end well. It's going to be happily ever after for everybody. Yeah, everything that was created will be redeemed. Everything that is created will be redeemed. That includes not just all people, but fallen angels and Satan. Satan, yeah. So, Origen has what's called... And everyone who chose damnation. Yeah, so Origen is going to take this and develop it, and it's it's we need to like reverence it. It's not this guy is the greatest mind in the early church. That's on the authority of Christopher Dawson. Yep, he is. He's he is not a slough or an idiot. He's actually very traditional, and this is what we miss is that we think of Origen as bad, one of these bad guys. You know, we got the good guys and the bad guys, and he's a bad guy. He was actually very traditional, and and the same with uh, Arius. Uh, these guys were so platonic in their thinking that they couldn't break out of that. So they applied, they, they heavily applied Platonic philosophy to Paul's words and kind of radicalized this vision, which leads to a crazy conclusion that mm. Satan and everybody in the end of time will be reconciled to God. Yeah, so, and there's, there's an ambiguity about whether, how strongly Origen held this position. Was he speculating because there's room for speculation in theology, and he wanted dialogue with other theologians. Um, 200 years later, it was condemned as a heresy, right? Yep. 200, 250, 300 years. But at the time, this was was an acceptable kind of speculation, and it was debatable, and there was lots of shades of what people thought. Augustine talks about the Masa Damnata. A lot of people are going to be damned. 
Gregory of of Nyssa and Nazianzus are pretty much universalists, right? Who say who say basically everyone's saved by the power of the cross. Now they don't say that you can't not be saved, like you can, um, like everything will necessarily be saved by Jesus. Like that takes away free will, right? Mm-hmm. And also that the the fallen angels who have made their choice would be saved. They don't go to that extreme, but they do say like, okay, we expect probably most people will be saved. Um, so that's kind of a universalist position. And there's all kinds of shades on this spectrum. And Origen, I think, was speculating about that stuff. I think if he was pressed and if he would have been said challenged with, okay, if you keep teaching this, you're a heretic, it might have looked differently. But at the time, it was just like, okay, here's an idea. And that idea was um, eventually condemned. Yeah, so, so well said. The, the, the notion that Origen proposes but, wi- but with nuance and with kind of some delicacies, not just radical and cavalier, is condemned by the Synod of Constantinople in the 6th century, so 543. Uh, so it is church teaching uh, that you cannot hold that uh, by virtue of Christ's atonement, all will be liberated, including fallen angels out of hell um, and Satan himself. Heresy. There is no justification applied after death. You can't. You, you can't just have that. Now, what I think played into this was again thinking of Origen not as a radical, not as a liberal, but as a as a conservative. What are the two things in Platonic thought that led to this? Number one, the notion of transmigration of souls. Mm-hmm. So bodies don't matter. What matters is souls. Yeah. So think about this. And with every life, you have a new chance for something. Right. So there's a different understanding of the material world, and it's it, that's what's going to fall away. Yeah, it's passing, yeah. So if you are a soul that's kind of moving on, so to speak, how can we kind of account for this? And that'd be the same with angels. So you understand how there's this kind of fluidity to the yeah. spiritual realm, which, which could reconcile that. That's one thing. The second thing is um, we forget that Christianity breaks the ancient world of its notion of cyclical and, and, and eternal returns. So we think linearly and how we think historically. There's a beginning, creation ex nihilo, and there's an end, the eschaton. And there's this line in between that really matters. That's not how the ancients thought. That's not how Plato thought, right? You have this, it's, it's cyclical. It's yeah. eternal. There's no, there is no creation ex nihilo in the ancient world prior yeah. to Christian revelation. This is a distinctively, a distinctive fact out of the Judeo-Christian culture. Yeah, you and might s- compare it to, now you hear people speculating, like, if there's um, infinite number of universes, like mm-hmm. we're one big bang within a bunch of big bangs, and there's an infinite number of universes, that means there's an infinite number of possibilities. That means I exist somewhere else doing exactly what I'm doing now, or doing something else, but uh, there's a, an infinite number of versions of that. And the, the, the Judeo-Christian um, idea of creation is, no, this is it. God made some, something out of nothing. There isn't an absolute continuity and infinite possibilities. There's this. There's reality. And it has a beginning, and it will have an end. And, um, and we exist within that as a finite reality. Right. This isn't one piece of my life that's going to happen a thousand times. This is my life, right? And it only happens once in the flesh. And then there's something beyond, but 
what what happens beyond uh, is related to a judgment about my life now. So we have to search for the authentic meaning of apokatastasis, universal restoration, a word that it, that Peter uses in Scripture and says is going to happen at the end of time. But we right. know that. And can I make this note? Yes. That a lot of people right now will throw around these. They'll say the um, heresy of apokatastasis, or they'll they'll mention the word as if this is heretical to talk about apokatastasis. No, this is Scripture. Right. This is the Holy Spirit well saying said. something through the voice of Peter and recorded by Luke or whoever wrote it. So you still have to deal with this line. Yeah. Well said. That was a nice eulogy, as you once told me. <laughs> Mike complimented a homily I gave one time, and he said, that was a nice eulogy. And I was nice like, that was harsh and he's like oh i mean it was you you logos it was a nice it was a good word it's a greek I was like, you are such a, such a nerd okay so what can you not hold that's that's the thing there's basically three three points that get mixed up with this that have been clarified by the church number one we already mentioned it christ's atonement does not extend to fallen angels okay okay yep number two with the arrival of death the possibility of merit or demerit and conversion ceases yep you can't make yeah. You can't make new salvific decisions. Right, and then Your life lastly, the punishment of hell lasts for eternity, or for oh, endless yeah. time, as Aquinas will qualify. Eternity is in God; hell is endless time, is is what he speculates. Mm-hmm. So these are kind of the these are the boundary lines, but uh, like you said, we have to search for the 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 true meaning of this. That there is this universal restoration. There is. Everything is reconciled in God, but but how do we account for that with human freedom? So, as we mentioned, yeah, for the first two centuries, right. the first two centuries, there is a unified East and West. There's not um, this separation. Fourth century, um, Constantinople comes into being. Constantine moves the emperor, empire to the East, and there's a split between the Latin West and the Eastern Greek thought, and they really get separated and they really change. Okay, so. So they're, they're, they're not living in relation to each other, and this is going to be problematic, and it's going to lead to this, the great schism of the 11th century, which is why we're still to this day separated from the Orthodox. On the opposite extreme, a century later after Origen, is Augustine, one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church. But if you read the last few books of the City of God, it's kind of scary. Yeah, it is. And one of the things that he proposes working out of the scriptural text, which is, which, is a, which is a very valid and sobering assessment, is what he calls the masa damnata, that the majority of humanity are damned. Yep. So it's, it's this presupposition, based on, again, based in scripture, based on the words of Christ, that the majority of humanity are in hell. So hell is way more populated I than heaven. I think it was, it's probably more complicated than based on the words of Christ. Well... Yes, he says, um, few are those who take the narrow road, and many are those who take the wide road. Um, what that means exactly, I'm not sure. Or if that's talking about this life, is he talking about hell and heaven? Is he talking about, is right. he saying something exhortative, try to live your life a certain way? What's the context behind St. Augustine saying that, though, because wasn't the city of God about the sack of Rome? Wasn't that the context? And, like, there's, like, chaos, and people are dying, and uh, the faith is in turmoil because these barbarians have invaded. I mean... 
That's definitely part of it. He's writing the city of God, it, um, I believe, from uh, 405 to 432, something like that. Don't quote me, but um, it's at the end of his life. Yeah, the Roman and Empire the baptized, is being destroyed. The it's baptized being, yeah. are still few. And when he's talking about the city of God, he's talking about the baptized, right? Yeah, and it, but he... So it, things are serious. Um, the world is collapsing. The known world. I mean, imagine if... I mean, we're, we're living in some hard times right now, but imagine if just like everything falls apart. Yeah. I'm talking to Stephen Natong, one of my guys from Myanmar. Yeah, it's like that. His country is in civil war, and it, it's he can't he can't communicate with his family. It is completely falling apart. We don't need, we can't even begin to fathom what that would be like. That's what Augustine's living through, and I think it gives his people hope to say, "Yeah, this is a veil of tears, and yeah. this is this is not but good." But Jesus has rescued us. But Jesus has rescued you know? us. So cling to Christ alone in this. Um, but Augustine, he he does a couple other things as well. In that he differentiates hell. So he looks at the Lazarus rich young uh, rich man and the chasm that separates them from the Gospels, and he says, "Well, then there's got to be an upper hell and a lower hell." Oh, really? Okay. And this is where we get the the longstanding theological tradition, small t, that Christ descends into the limbus patris, uh, right? The limbo of the fathers. Okay. This is not babies. Okay, we're talking about different limbo. Limbo just means place. Sheol is the Hebrew. Hades is the Greek. Bosom of Abraham. The bosom of Abraham. Where does Christ go when he descends? This is connected to this. Why? Because I want to bring you to 1986. Right. So he can say, but he he would say, Augustine, he descended into hell. It's just with this definition. Yeah, but where? But what is hell? Right. Right. There, there's no evidence in the. And this is something I was. But talking. would he have said that? That's yeah. That's Nicene Constantinople, right? It is. Right? That's doctrinal. Yeah. Now, that doesn't come into the 4th century, that, that clarification, but that is absolutely doctrinal. Okay. Um, the descent into hell, Jesus descends into hell, but what is hell? We think of hell yeah. as the place of the damned. Is it? Balthasar makes the point, he says, there's no biblical evidence in the Old Testament that there's a differentiated hell. Right, there's shale. And his whole point is not to say that souls are not suffering the poena damnata, the the pains of damnation, okay? Not to say that everybody's just kind of hanging out in the jacuzzi down there, but that there's real particular judgment in these things. But Christ's descent, just as it definitively opens heaven, also kind of definitively creates hell. This is Balthazar's theory. And he lays this out in 1986 in a small, very controversial book (laughs) that few have read, but everybody seems to hate, called Dare We Hope (laughs) That All Men Be Saved. Which in the German is was dürfen wir hoffen? Yeah. What, what should we hope? ought we to hope? Yeah. And I asked, I asked Joe Fessio, the found, who's a great you, Balthazar scholar who founded Ignatius Press, which, which according to Garonsky, basically saved the American intellectual tradition. Ignatius Press started in the late seventies, yeah, and I said, "Why did you name it? Why did you name it? Dare we hope that?" All? And he goes, "I don't know. I haven't, I haven't thought about that in a while." And I was like, "Oh no! <laughs> this is like my one chance to talk to you." Was dürfen wir hoffen? What ought we to hope, which comes out of what? First Timothy chapter two, verse three there to six. Go. It's scriptural, yeah. This is good, and it is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men t- to be saved. Yeah. And to come to the knowledge yeah. of the truth. And Jesus says, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. So von Balthazar is accused of many things, and one of them is that he is a heretic who subscribes to apocatastasis or this universalism which has been definitively condemned by the church 
and which he apparently seems to hold. And there is a version that has been condemned. You read the rules. Right. Just read the book. <laughs> Here's what um, a certain guy named Robert Barron has to say, who wrote the foreword to the most recent translation of Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved. It is curious that a text so often characterized as advocating an, an easy universalism in regard to salvation actually commences with a clear statement that all men stand under, under divine judgment. Whatever else Hans Urs von Balthasar says in this book, one thing he quite clearly is not saying is that we have certain knowledge that all people will be saved. But what he will insist is that we are permitted to hope that hell might be empty of men. Yeah. Balthazar's question is a question of hope. It's not this kind of cosmic, platonically informed apocatastasis that says everything has to be kind of worked yeah. out at the end. But he's you, saying, there what are... do you do with living in a secular, postmodern world where most people are not Christian and most Christians are not practicing, what do you do with that? What do you do at a funeral when somebody right. commits suicide? Right. What is hope, and what does what that do look like? What do you do with the fact that three-quarters of this planet don't know Jesus, aren't Christians? What do you do with that? We, and Jesus came to save them. And the majority of people who have ever lived don't know Jesus, and Jesus came to save them. We have a friend who has preached hell uh, at a... At a excuse me, at a funeral of a suicide. And he got transferred because it was an idiotic thing to do. Yeah. We've also heard theologians speak about the importance of hell and that if you don't talk about hell enough from the pulpit, that it uh, renders evangelization totally empty. Yeah. And Balthazar has been accused. And I, I'm thinking of like our local church, not so much our seminary, but there's a lot of people hanging out in our area, Orthodox Catholics, who are kind of like, Balthazar's a heretic, Right. And it's like, you're, you're missing the entire thing. Here. No, I think if we don't preach the hope of the Christian, then we wind up with a, a form of, it's almost Pelagian. It's, it's something, it's, it, it reduces the, 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 the salvation of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, to a game of whether or not I follow the right rules and I get saved. It is Islam. It is Islam. The difference between us and Islam is not that we have someone who gave us rules and they're enlightened rules that we can follow and be okay. We have a God who saved us in spite of our stupidity. And, and Hans is just saying, hey, what about hope? Have we forgotten the Christian hope, which is that Jesus has saved the world and he came to save the world? He didn't just come to save you because you went through RCIA or because you got baptized when you were a baby. You, he came to save the world. Now, he's not saying that everyone is necessarily saved. And there were contemporaries of Hans Urs that were saying things that were really stretching the line. Tehard de Chardin is talking in a Hegelian way that is very suggestive that the world is just naturally going to save itself. And that everyone, this is all a part of the, the poetic, beautiful process of history. And they take away any choice. They take away any decision. They take away any working with grace and freedom. And that's not what Hans is doing. He's just saying, hey, look, this is the beauty and the, and the genius of our religion, is that God came to save us. 
and that we should hope that everybody benefits from that salvation. Well, without hope, then why pray for the dead? You know what I mean? If, if, if we don't have hope that, that all men can be saved, if we don't have hope that our prayers mean something, then why even pray for the dead? I mean, it's a, it's a spiritual work of mercy to pray for the dead. It's a corporal work of mercy to bury the dead. Why do those things if we don't have a sense of hope that there's salvation, that salvation is possible for all those who have died? Yeah. And just a consistent hope that, that souls, that God can reach people in a mysterious way that actually transcends our understanding and our, and our calculation. I like it, that transcends our calculation because it's, it's easy to say, okay, you know, you've been, um, well, yeah, yeah. To, to count how baptism works, it's very mysterious. I think that's important, the question of calculation. And um, the temptation to use theological knowledge as power, we know. We know who's in hell, really. And it's like, do we? Yeah. No, uh, I mean, and here's, okay. Yeah, so so for, the sake, for the sake of catechesis, here's another like absolute. We're, we're talking about a lot of theoretical things. Here's another absolute. The church has never declared any person right. in hell. You can't say that we know who's in hell. Now, there's mystics who have seen a lot of souls in hell kind of thing, but there has never, ever been declared a single name. Right. And we can't do that. Right. And I think, I think that's telling, and it's important. Can you get that from Dante, though? Yeah. That's not theology. Oh, yeah. Dante puts a lot of people in hell. But well, he's just, he's just writing a, a, a symbolic kind of speculation about how hell and purgatory and heaven might work. I think it's important. It's, it's a fiction, if, if but you it's actually, a beautiful one. Yeah, if you, if, for those who have read this book carefully and with an open kind of heart towards it, you, the first thing Balthazar says, he starts with judgment. Judgment is real. Absolutely. Jesus brings judgment. But then the question is, what do we do about hope? Like, what does hope look like in light of that judgment? So he's not saying it's not part of it, but there's this kind of so he's really rejecting the, this theory of the Masa Damnata, but but specifically he's not even really attacking Augustine, nor is he talking uh, attacking Aquinas. Though he does disagree when Aquinas talks about what part of the joys of heaven is seeing the dam, the justice of the dam, seeing the justice of I the know. dam. He says, nah, "I don't know about that." That's rough. But and and this is a line from Adrian von Speyer that he starts the second half of the work with, which talks about Mike what you were saying, which is this thing about the closing of knowledge. So she says this, and I love this, this verse. If our truth is to belong to God's, then it has to remain fundamentally open to God's. For anyone who exclu- excludes the prospect of hope from his faith, that faith becomes closed knowledge. Perhaps, however, the decisive thing has always lain in what is hidden, and it is necessary to dismantle one's judgments and to reassemble everything anew from the standpoint of the hidden then it seems as if faith has its deepest roots in hope and as if the light of temporal day draws its entire luster from what is hidden in the day of revelation. We have had to do that in the parish. We have had to preach very difficult homilies in the face of seemingly impossible salvific circumstances. And I think what she says here, we've had to do. The decisive thing is to focus on what is hidden and it is necessary to dismantle one's judgments and to reassemble everything anew from the standpoint of the hidden. Mm. Father Nathan Goebel just buried a young man 
who died tragically in a car accident, and the toxicology re- report came back, unfortunately, positive. What do you do with that? What does hope look like in that? What do you say? I understand people don't want us to canonize everybody, mm-hmm. but there has to be this movement of true hope, and hope stands between two extremes, despair and presumption. Mm. And Balthazar is not presuming anything. He's not saying I have any certainty over this whatsoever. He's yeah, just saying there can be we no ought to hope because God desires that all men be and saved. And you know what? Okay, so he, I'll, I'll add this. Um, anecdotally, I went to a funeral. It was profound. It was a similar circumstance to what you've just described. It was complicated. It was dark. And somebody died very young. And, and the preacher who was related said... I rely on the promises that Jesus made to this young man at baptism, that he would save him. And that's a promise from Jesus. And he wasn't speculating about, okay, like what is the current state of this person and and their judgment? There was fear. I mean, there was fear of this person has died in a very unsettling circumstance. But that reliance on the promise of Jesus was like, I'm going to settle into the the hidden mystery of this um, the, the power of the cross. We don't know how it works. I can't presume to know how it works. Um, it's it's uh, it's very difficult to live in that uncertainty and hiddenness. That's not satisfying to somebody like me who wants answers, and I want to be able to to judge things. Not judge sounds like a bad word, but judge just means I want I know this. I don't know that. And I want to know everything. And the the hiddenness yeah. of the reality of grace is much more profound. The way that grace permeates the world is much more profound than um, than we can label. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the entire time you guys were talking, I was thinking about how our culture loves certainty and almost forces it in an area where they don't have it because we don't know how to deal with uncertainty. And that's where I think the beauty of the church's teaching on purgatory and uh, prayer of the dead, burying the dead. Like, like we are a communion of, of persons here. And um, I'm, I'm struck by that line in the funeral mass that says, uh, life is changed, not ended. And, and t- every time I preach a funeral homily, I preach on that line. Life is changed, not ended. Like, what do we believe in? Like, Christ went through suffering and death, not so that we can escape it, so that we can go through it, uh, we can enter into it through him, with him, and in him, that, that what we all, the mystery we all have to go through, that we have no certainty with, like, we can at mm. least know with certainty that he is there with us in suffering and death. And that, that breeds hope. You know, and that that gives shape to everything we teach about the afterlife, and especially purgatory, and and praying for the dead. Like, we have to accept there are limitations on human knowledge, and I feel like we're in a time where we have we push everything to certainty, uh, and that goes beyond just death. That goes to everything. You know, politics, Do you think, COVID, you name it. Do you think then we should be praying for all of the? souls in purgatory who never knew never knew Christ and were unbaptized. I tend yeah. to think honestly, I tend to think of purgatory just in terms of I haven't really thought this through a lot but in terms of like baptized people who pretty much sucked at life <laughs> <laughs> and Christian thing. And if they then you end up in 
but I don't think necessarily like I should be I should be praying and doing penance for all these people who never knew Jesus and well, Yeah, I mean I taught this while you guys were on convocation. I taught this for for John's class that uh we think of we think of things in terms of a place when we when we talk about heaven, hell and purgatory right. and we should really talk about it in terms of a person. And this is Ratzinger. Like we should talk about heaven as perfect unity with Christ himself and purgatory as the process by which we are becoming more like Christ. And, and ultimately, hell is the total absence yeah. of Christ. It's about communion. And when you think about it that way, like there are people who die and pass from this life who aren't perfectly conformed to Christ, but, but they're still an attachment to him. Uh, and there's this process by which they become more like him that happens in the afterlife. Now, do we know exactly what that looks like? No. I mean, saints have had visions, but we don't know with certainty. But we still pray for that perfect conformity of Christ for all those who've died, and that's, that's good news. That's, that's the kind of message that should be preached, I think, at, at death, because when you, when you lose a loved one, I mean, this is how I came to the Catholic faith. My, my friend was killed by a drunk driver. Right. I saw the whole thing happen. I was the first one on the scene of the accident. I mean, it was up close and personal, and everybody I talked to was saying, don't worry, she's another angel in heaven. And my response to that is, what the heck does that even mean? Yeah, you this know? is my friend. But I finally went to a Catholic youth group where they started talking about these things in terms of Jesus, and I thought, you know what? Actually, that makes way mm. more sense, and you're not just like tiptoeing around my discomfort and trying to just make me feel better that I just mm. watched my friend die. Like, I don't need that. I need somebody to be with me in the midst of that suffering and to direct me to like hope. Yeah. To have real hope. <laughs> There's actually a future for my friend yeah. oh. and it's a good one. Oh. And well, not, not yeah. wishful thinking the angel yeah. in the Hallmark card. Like that's not satisfying and that's not real. You know, I want real for my real people. Well, I think and this is the final point I'll make and then take it off to you guys for the last, but when I hear your conversion happening through that experience, what it says to me is that the encounter with Christ and the satisfaction of the heart or the correspondence of the heart that happens is not based in knowledge, it's based in mystery. And we're living in a time, and I don't want to go on a long diatribe here, but we are living in a time where our Orthodox friends, those who really profess the true Catholic faith, who are very small in number, are getting crazy. All right? They're getting desperate, and they're listening to blind guides who are telling them this Not is what every, it means. Remember that Father John speaks no, in hyperbole. No, everybody, always, everybody, every time. This this kind of new rigoristic orthodoxy, which is kind of cynical uh, and ju- and and just frankly judgmental is not lending itself towards mystery. And it will not satisfy the desire of the hearts. And we have to change. And I'm calling you to it. If you're listening to this and you're listening to these false prophets who are saying, this person isn't Catholic enough, this person's a heretic, it's like, no, no, no. Love. Love is what is necessary. And love is what moves us to hope. And yeah, you can be right. And you can say, all the judgment is there. All of the evidence is there. This guy's in hell because he committed suicide or this person did this. That's not love. That's not Christian. Yeah. And we're, I mean, I'm watching orthodoxy collapse into something that is so dysfunctional and so un, inhuman and frankly just wrong. And Balthazar is being thrown into the bus. And this guy is one of the greatest, if not the greatest of the last century. And I, it, it drives me crazy. And so I just I end with that p- appeal of like, you don't have to read him. You don't have to read him. 
but do not say stupid crap that that you're hearing other people just kind of parrot and we got to get back to the basics we're not going to win a culture that is post-christian back by preaching about hell more we have to take yeah. judgment seriously we have to take our moral agency very seriously but we have to hope and we have to live in mystery and that's the final word is hiddenness and the unknowability of God's mysterious act, which ultimately will restore and reconcile the world, but we don't know how. Yeah. I'm done. Sorry. That's it. It's not, it's not our judgment. And where I see people judging harshly, and there are plenty of them. I make fun of you for hyperbole, but it's true. I, and it concerns me about the church right now, too. Is I think when people judge harshly and they want to exclude as many people as they can, it's because of insecurity. I'm afraid that I'm not saved. I keep screwing things up, and I'm afraid. Don't be afraid. Jesus says over and over, don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. He loves you. He came to save you. We make mistakes. I don't know how to communicate well enough to my parishioners that Jesus isn't waiting there with like a, you know, just trying to tally your your failures. This is much, much bigger than that. And don't reduce it because, it, you know, Paul has that great line, you know, don't, don't take away the power of the cross. Don't steal the, you know, don't let this, this, this self-judgment and judgment of other people reduce the power of the cross. Um, and he was seeing it in his time. I see it now. People are insecure with their own faith. And so they have to find somebody to say, well, that one's worse. That one's worse. They're damned. I'm saved. Well, it doesn't work like that, and it's so much bigger. Jesus is so much bigger. Go join Islam. I'm telling you, if you want to, if you want to play by that, you know, if I play by the rules and someone else is not, they're whatever. Then that's not Christianity. This is much bigger and it's more mysterious than what uh, what you'd give it credit for. Now, okay, one one point I want to get back to on the on the uh, all right, and then we got to close it on up, the okay. exegetical. Yeah. Okay, so this is just, I guess, for the audience interest, is that verse in Acts, in Acts 3 talks about the restoration of all things, or it could be talking about the restoration of all things that the prophets spoke of. Now, that is a kind of caveat that people want to conveniently use to say, well, it's not a restoration of all things. It's not, a, it's not a hope for the salvation universally or something like that. But then if you're going to use this as, as a way of getting around, like this restoration of all things that the prophets spoke of, if you're going to use that as a way to get around universalism, you're going to have to show me all of the promises that prophets made about what God was going to do for the people of Israel and for the future and, and salvation. And it's big. It's new creation. It's the gathering of the nations. It's the, the, the promise of salvation of his people and of um, the blessing of every person on earth. Okay, so you start building your list of everything that the prophets spoke of, and then we can talk about what, what, what they mean by restoration. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Will, before we give you a final shout-out here, um, we have to close it off because we're hitting an hour. Um, we're going to take a little break this summer. So thank you, by the way, for that. Uh, that was a great discussion. That was way better than I expected it to be. Um, so thanks to you guys. Um, but yeah, we're taking a little break. We're going to take June and July off. So this is going to come out in the second week of May, and then we'll have two more after that. But we, we, just, we need a little break. 
Um, and so read deeply, read Acts, read Von Balthazar. Oh, no, you guys are going to have plenty. Uh, uh, there's a lot of good stuff out there. Check out Mike Schmidt's Bible in a Year. And we're going to try to... Um, Northern gonna, Fathers, <laughs> Will's podcast. We're going to try to drop a uh, an episode. Yeah, Northern Fathers, uh, the, the best <laughs> podcast out there. And then we're going to try to drop something from the archive each week. So there's still going to be published something from um, each week. If And we've had almost 500 episodes, so yeah. it's probably going to be something you haven't heard. And um, we are also trying to time things so that we can get um, Father Michael Olo right. back on for the 500th episode. Right. So we have kind of... Uh, different different motives for this, but we do need a little break. So uh, we'll thank you for um, patience with us. And, yeah, um, yeah. Pray for us while we're just chilling in the summer, relaxing. Yeah, um, yeah. And thank you for uh, this tonight, boys. Appreciate it. We'll do a shout out real quick. I, I just want to say a shout out to Darcy Swain. Do you know Darcy Swain? She works uh, at the seminary, and uh, I she was oh, helping yeah. with some photocopies today. And she said she's been listening since day one. Convert, oh, Darcy, convert who just typed in Catholic in podcasts and found us. I think there's a lot of people who've done I'm that. sorry. It's <laughs> so, so I just was grateful to hear that. She's been listening for uh, 11 years. So thanks for your work at the seminary. Really appreciate it. Will, you got any final ones? Yeah, I want to do a shout out to the soon to be Father Ian Wintering, who is also hey. going to be my new parochial vicar up in Flagstaff. He's going to hey. join the Northern Fathers. This is kind of an, and, an announcement. Uh, it's been a real blessing for me. Uh, I was his chaplain when, uh, when he when I was a newly ordained priest when he was in high school, and uh, when he started turning priesthood, he moved into the rectory with me um, to actually like really concretely discern. And so it's been a, a, just a great ride. Now I get to be his his first pastor as a priest. This is a great blessing. I can't wait to have him in flag. Praise God, man. That's like Paul and Timothy. Here's a guy who's prayed for the, his his buddy for a long time. Yep. And Father Ian is awesome. Well, not Father Ian. Soon to be Father Soon Ian. Soon to be. He's an awesome guy. He's going to be a great blessing. And I'm glad he's assigned with you. Uh, last shout out, I'm going to shout out Dean Bechard, SJ, Dean Bechard. the great Jesuit, my uh, director. He has taught me more about apocatastasis in Acts of the Apostles than anybody else. So um, appreciate him. Shout nice. Out. And then do you want to shout out like all mothers and all birds? I do usually. Do. All I do. trees. You know, God. All Catholics. Yes. Well, everything that's going to be in the universe. Yeah. Speaking of apocatastasis. Every seed, yeah. every, every tulip bulb that dwells about uni- underneath the earth. Yeah. Yeah, you have a universalist tendency with shout-outs. <laughs> I do with the shout out. All right, everybody. Thank you. Catholic Stuff Podcast You're at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.